This episode is brought to you by Galactic Fed, the award-winning digital marketing agency that I personally use and whose co-founders have both been interviewed on The Maverick Show, Zach Boyette and Irina Popik. Now, I personally use Galactic Fed for search engine optimization and conversion rate optimization, but they also offer services for email marketing, social media, website design, paid media, and more. They're basically a full-service end-to-end growth marketing solution. And they were founded by two digital nomads as a fully remote company, which now has 150 staff in 27 countries, so they understand remote entrepreneurs. What I love about working with Galactic Fed is, first of all, their team is fun and amazing, and I'm smiling and laughing on pretty much every call that we have, but I also love their scientific approach to growth marketing. They've worked with companies of all sizes and industries, ranging from edible arrangement to PixArt, and they've developed battle-tested digital marketing solutions that produce results that are scalable and repeatable. And Galactic Fed now wants to help you grow your business. They're offering you a completely free marketing plan for your business, which you can get at galacticfed.com. That's galacticfed.com. And if you do decide to work with them, like I do, just mention The Maverick Show and you'll get 10% off your first month of services. To learn more and get your completely free marketing plan, just go to galacticfed.com. That's galacticfed.com. And now here's a clip from what's coming up on today's episode. At one point, we were really, really like, you know, back of the car kind of vibe, you know, like selling out of the trunk of the car type vibe. And all of our stuff was warehoused in our basement in the house that we were living in. And there was a massive flood and the whole basement flooded and all the inventory. It was wood inventory at the time. So when the flood came in, it destroyed all of it. So, you know, obviously we thought we were bankrupt again. There's just so many scenarios like that. And I think, you know, for anyone that's thinking about starting a business, you need to expect that these things are coming because they are. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Shane Vitale Foran. He is the founder, CEO, and lead designer for two fashion brands Vitale Design and Clocks and Colors. Shane's brands produce a combined eight figures in annual sales and have a total social media reach of over 1 million followers. He employs a team of 35 people in Canada, five in Portugal, and several hundred throughout Asia. Originally from Canada, Shane has been a judge on the fashion designer competition show Stitched, and he has appeared on the TV show Dragon's Den, which is the Canadian version of Shark Tank, where he pitched and received investment offers from every single dragon, making him one of the most successful pitches and businesses in Dragon's Den history. In 2017, at age 29, Shane was named the Canadian Notable Entrepreneur of the Year. Shane also runs his companies fully remotely while traveling the world and has lived in 15 countries 
in just the last year alone. Shane, welcome to the show. How's it going, Matt? Good to be here. Awesome to have you here, buddy. I am super excited for this interview. We should just set the scene a little bit. We're actually not in the same place today at the moment. I am recording this interview from West Africa. I am in Accra in Ghana. And where are you today? I'm sitting in my apartment in Toronto, actually. Toronto, Canada. Not Nothing too exotic, but one of my favorite <laughs> cities in the world. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, no, it's an amazing city. I actually grew up in Buffalo, New York, where I went to middle school and high school. And so I spent a lot of time uh, up in Toronto, many nights on Young Street and uh, hanging out in that incredible city. So it has a place that's near and dear in my heart as well. Now, the last time that you and I hung out together was earlier this year in Austin, Texas, because we spoke on the same panel together at the South by Southwest conference. It was a panel on remote entrepreneurship in the digital age. And I wanted to just maybe open up with that a little bit, just in terms of some of your reflections on Austin and the South by conference and what the panel was like for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a blast there. Um, you know, I'd always heard really, really good things about Austin, but I never looked into it. I, I didn't really know what to expect. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Like, I'm really, really looking forward to going back to the next South by Southwest. Um, what I will say is it is an enormous, enormous event. I had no idea about the scale. And, you know, knowing what I know now, I'm definitely going to make sure that I plan several weeks in advance and really kind of line up a schedule because, you know, there's just so much incredible stuff happening. There's so many impressive people. And, uh, you know, I think it's an incredible opportunity to learn. But, you know, as far as being on that panel with you, it was obviously a ton of fun. And I think we had a great turnout. And, you know, it just goes to show how many people are really interested in the same things we're interested in, which is, you know, really lifestyle design and, um, you know, finding ways to do the work that we care about and that we love while also living the lifestyle that we care about. We love. Yeah, no doubt. It was amazing. We had a really great turnout and then people wanted to just hang out with us afterwards for hours and and talk about things and all that. So it really turned into like a, a half day event. It was really, really fun. Now, before the panel, though, uh, we went to a party. Uh, it was like a brunch party for speakers. And you invited me to play this game of Jenga, which was like they had this giant Jenga game it was one of the things you could do there. And I wanted you to just tell the story about, about that and, uh, and what happened there. Because that was amazing. Yeah, that was epic. I love games. I'm, I'm not one of those people who likes to just go to a bar and stand around. So if I'm going to go to a bar, I like bars where I can play pretty well any kind of game. Um, and this particular bar had Jenga. No one was playing it. And I was like, well, I'm playing that. Um, and you were, you were down to do it with me. So we went and we started playing this Jenga on a table. The thing is, is I've played Jenga many times and I don't like to play it the normal way because I find it a little bit boring. So we stepped it up and we started stacking only two at a time instead of three and we stacked them on an angle. Um, and what this does is it just builds it to kind of an extreme height. And uh, we just went for it. And we ended up actually beating Jenga, which was pretty crazy. I've, I've played a million times and I've never actually beat it. And what I mean by that was there was literally not a single other play we could make. Um, and we had a huge crowd by the end. It was pretty hilarious. Like, <laughs> there was a lot of people just like kind of formed around us. Like, what the hell are these maniacs doing? And how tall do you think it was by the end? Like, obviously it was started on the table, but you know, like seven feet or something. Like we had to stand up on a bench. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, we we had to stand up on a bench to put the final pieces on top. We had every single piece removed and put on top. And well, what happened was the photographers of the event. So they had you know paid photographers there that were shooting pictures of the event, and they started shooting pictures of us playing Jenga. And then as it went on and on and on, and all the crowds started gathering around, the photographers documented like the entire thing. So we actually have uh, we were actually a pretty big part of that event unexpectedly. But that was amazing because I do not play Jenga very much. I mean, I've only played it a couple times and all of a sudden you went out there and we actually beat the game, which was unbelievable. Yeah, you're a natural. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, man. Well, let's get... I want to get into your entrepreneurial journey and also just sort of your background because it's a really, really incredible story. So maybe can you just talk a little bit about growing up in Canada and maybe first talk about... I mean, this is an audio podcast, right? So people can't really see you and you know, if they don't know your brand and your image and that kind of stuff, maybe you can just describe a little bit kind of you growing up and sort of the development of your identity and your fashion sense and, you know, all of those types of things and how you get into that. Yeah, for sure. So um, I was born in Alberta, Edmonton to be specific. So, you know, a medium-sized city. Um, but when I was about eight or nine, my parents moved me to this little town called Aurelia, about two hours north of Toronto. And that's where I kind of grew up until I left for university. I don't think that being born in the bigger city really made that big of a difference, but I think I was always kind of a city person. Um, I wasn't a person who was okay with you know the status quo, and I like to really kind of push boundaries. I got really into punk rock music at a very young age, and I think that probably had a pretty massive impact on my identity. I also was going to Catholic schools, and I've never really liked rules. So you know, in the Catholic school, you had to have a uniform, and you know, with my kind of like punk rock attitude, I thought I had it anyway. Um, I was always trying to kind of push the boundaries there. So, you know, by the age of 14 or 15, you would have seen me with a bunch of facial piercings. And, you know, I started stretching out my ears by that point and trying out every imaginable haircut. Um, You know, I I think I was probably the first person in my town to start wearing skinny jeans. And at the time, it was impossible to get skinny jeans for men. So I'd have to buy women's jeans. And, you know, obviously that would push some people's buttons. Like, you know, growing up in a small town, especially, you know, in this part of Canada, et cetera, um, you know, you're often up against people who don't really understand, you know, they, they are scared of something different. So, you know, I was kind of always, you know, having to deal with that and, 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 you know, adversity was something I was very, uh, kind of familiar with. Um, so, you know, speaking towards my style today, um, nothing really changed. I kind of continued to push things throughout my teenage years and then into my adulthood. And, you know, even now as a, you know, entrepreneur with many employees, um, I still stick to my style. At the moment, I'm wearing ripped jeans. I'm completely covered in tattoos all the way down to my hands. Um, you know, and I, and I like that. You know, that that's important for me because it's true to my identity. And I think that that's always been really, you know, I think that's actually been a really big part of my success in general is just being straight up and being blunt about who I am. Yeah, for sure. And can you talk a little bit about how that ultimately played into? the entrepreneurial path that you chose and the types of businesses that you chose to get involved with and maybe just you know what was the path to entrepreneurship for you from there yeah i mean i i think that the path started very young but i wasn't very aware of it you know if i've talked to my friends that i've known since i was a kid they weren't at all surprised that i ended up in fashion um but it certainly wasn't something that was in my even peripheral i would say but you know i was always pushing boundaries i was always altering my clothes or, you know, putting together, you know, random things on chains so that I could wear it as jewelry or doing ridiculous things to my hair. So I guess I had a 
kind of an innate interest in fashion without being very aware of it. And when I went to university, I think it kind of slid off a little bit. I was more focused on academia. I studied politics and marketing. Um, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. But when I finished, I was pretty much burnt out. So I went backpacking through Southeast Asia. And when I was there, I saw people who could actually manufacture things. So I had a ring made for myself. And that's kind of where it all started. But you know, I, I think that me getting there and, and deciding to do that started from a young age, but it wasn't really a plan. You know, it was, it was definitely very organic and kind of authentic to me. Yeah. I mean, I relate to your story a lot as well, Shannon. I mean, when I was coming up, I didn't come up in the in the punk rock scene, but I came up in the hip hop scene, right? And at the time, uh, hip hop was doing very similar things to what you're describing, right? It was pushing boundaries. It was challenging authority. It was really pushing establishment conventions uh, and making a lot of people pretty uncomfortable with a lot of the things that, that it was doing. Um, and I gravitated towards that uh, right away and sort of came up on that. And I always viewed you know, hip hop and the hip hop scene and the punk rock scene, although they were culturally distinct, I viewed them as sort of parallel cultures in many ways in terms of the contributions that they were making artistically, but also socially and politically, you know, in terms of a lot of the narratives and a lot of the, you know, cultural things that they were doing. And, you know, I came up, my first entrepreneurial endeavor, I would say, was that I wanted to be a hip hop DJ because I loved hip hop. And then I was able to parlay that into a mobile DJ company when I was still in high school um, and then just kind of went from there. So um, I, I love that. And I've always connected with you, I think, and related to your story very much in that way. And then I as well you know, left that for a while, the entrepreneurial thing and, and did something totally different. And then eventually I kind of came back to it, which is what I do now in terms of the real estate investment company that I co-founded, uh, Maverick Investor Group. But let me go back to your story now. Once you went to Bali and you had, you started finding manufacturers who were able to produce rings and jewelry and that kind of stuff. From there, what did that do for you? Like what was the realization and what was your next move after that? Yeah, honestly, there wasn't, I wasn't planning to start a jewelry brand or a company. I was really just trying to get something made for myself. So, you know, I was in this little town called Ubud, which has become very famous since then, actually kind of a really well-known yoga spot. But yeah, I was there and I was actually in this store and there was this guy who made handcrafted spacers or earplugs. And I used to have my ears stretched out and I was kind of just looking at them nostalgically. And, uh, you know, before leaving, I'd seen a two finger ring. And so I asked the guy, I was like, you know, I just drew something really, really awful. And I was like, could you carve something like this? And he was like, yeah, no problem. Come back in a couple of days. So I came back in a couple of days and he had something for me and it was God awful. Like it was brutal, but I was just immediately hooked. I was like, oh my God, like I drew that and now it's a thing, you know? And, and the fact that an idea had become something tangible was something that I was just immediately addicted to. So I planned to spend two or three days there and ended up spending three weeks there. And I just kept kind of refining that design. And once I had something that I thought was wearable, you know, I certainly wouldn't consider it that today, but I was really excited. So the cost of them was, you know, low enough that I could bring a whole bunch of them back as gifts for friends and kind of, you know, leave it at that. So that's what I did. You know, I brought home maybe about 20 pieces, gave away probably eight of them to friends and everybody loved them. They're like, you know, these are weird. I, I don't think I would have ever worn these, but because they're a gift, they're wearing them out and they'd wear them to the bar and, you know, people would notice it and give them compliments. And they're like, oh, this is really cool. Like, you know, this was at a time too when it was really hard to get people, or especially men, sorry, to wear jewelry. So, you know, most of these were going out to guys that I knew and they were wearing them out and, you know, feeling like, wow, this got me a lot of attention. So I think that's when I started to realize I had something, but it didn't really turn into an actual business idea, I guess, until I was in a store on Queen Street, which is kind of Toronto's coolest street, you could say, um, and definitely the best shopping. 
And, you know, I was in the store and I knew that the owner was in there. So I just, I had 12 of them or something in my backpack. And I was like, Hey, can I show you something? I'd just be really curious if this is something you would ever sell. I wasn't actually trying to sell them to her. I was literally just like, you know, I'd be very curious. It's like market research. You could call it before even thinking about the fact that it was market research. And I showed her the rings and she literally said, you know, how much would they cost? And it's like, I hadn't even thought about it. I just wanted to see if you were interested. And she's like, I'll take them all right now, as long as the price is reasonable. You make up a price, get me a receipt book and I'll buy them. So I sold them all on the spot, like all my kind of what you call samples, I guess. That was when I knew, like, I was like, okay, I've, I've got something. That being said, my initial plan was to maybe sell enough of them to pay for another backpacking trip. So I went home and that day I placed an order with the guy who made them for me originally. I took the last $3,000 I had on the student credit line and I sent it all to him. And I was like, send me as many as you can. And my entire plan from that point was to just kind of hustle them out of a backpack. And, you know, maybe I'd make 10 grand back and I could go on a trip again. And, you know, it wasn't the most ambitious goal ever. But I think that was kind of part of the path to success is that I didn't start with a big, crazy, lofty goal. I started with something achievable. Um, And once I hit it, I kind of, you know, reset that goal, reset that goal. And I think that's what most successful entrepreneurs do. So that was about nine years ago. And, you know, the goals have certainly been reset many times and many times over again. And the types of goals have changed dramatically, you know, like over time, there was a phase where the goals became too much about money. And, and, you know, then it was like, okay, let's kind of rethink this, like, chasing just the money isn't making us happy isn't making the product better all right so let's let's go on that ride a little bit so you you demonstrate that there is demand for this product it's a completely unique product and you now have one place where you're you know you're able to get it manufactured so nine years ago you scraped together a few thousand dollars uh and you send that off and manufacture as many of them as you can and then from there what happened and what was the next step yeah so i got i got that first shipment and all of them broke. <laughs> so I thought my life was over. That was one of the many, many, many awful experiences that we've gone through. What happened was the designs had metal on the inside of them and then wood on the outside. So the wood contracted and just cracked. So I received this box, but that was all of my money and everything was broken. So I was like, okay, well, my life is over. But I reached out to the guy who made them and I said, you know, this is what happened. If we would do, if we did this, I think they'd be okay. And he's like, okay, well, I think I see an opportunity for this business. So I'm going to remake them for you and we'll keep going. So that was pretty amazing. So a couple months later, I received the next batch and I started selling them. And so I did that for about a year, just selling those kind of simple wood, two finger and three finger rings. Um, and within that year, my roommate and now business partner, Jason, was watching the demand grow. And you know, he was becoming kind of interested. And after about six months, I approached him and I was like, look, you know, I think that I might be onto something where I could actually maybe even make a living doing this. Um, and at the time, my idea of a living wasn't exactly crazy. So, you know, it, it was definitely something that seemed achievable. Um, but I was like, you know, I'm going to need some sort of investment though. Like I, I just, I'm running out of cash quick. And he's like, well, you know, I'd be happy to invest. And I'd had a business in university with a friend and our relationship kind of fell apart because of it. So I was really apprehensive. Um, but after a few months, he kind of convinced me like, look, like we're both really logical. Let's do this. And he got involved and his idea was just he'd put some cash in and keep go back to what he was doing, which he was a commercial helicopter pilot and a professional poker player. Super brilliant, super interesting guy. But he ended up kind of working side by side with me pretty quickly. And it was shortly after that, that I came up with my next kind of like big idea. And that was to make a collection of jewelry that was made out of ceramic. So at the time, ceramic watches were getting really popular and I was really impressed by the material. 
So I was like, you know, what if we made rings out of this stuff? Like, I think it'd be super cool and super trendy and would be a lot better quality than working with wood and probably faster to produce. So we started working at that and I ended up taking a trip to China by myself. We didn't have any manufacturers. Um, we were incredibly broke. So I had to do it like on the most hilarious shoestring budget. And I got to tell you, that was, I love traveling. That was the worst trip of my life. Like it was so awful. China is a really, really tough place when you're trying to navigate it on your own. And, you know, these days my suppliers treat me so, so well and they look after everything. But at that time we were a nobody. And our first question was like, what's the lowest minimum order quantity you'll do? And obviously these factories never want to hear that. So yeah, that was, uh, that was a nightmare. I remember the first hostel that I stayed in just getting eaten alive by who knows what, like it wasn't bed bugs. So I don't even know what it was, but I was just riddled in bites and that was just a pretty brutal experience. But yeah, I mean, and it was just kind of one step from there to the next. And, you know, we eventually did find a ceramic supplier and we had about 15 massive problems before we had a deliverable product or a product that we could deliver. Sorry. But, you know, we started doing that and then that kind of led us into doing stainless steel jewelry and stainless steel jewelry is kind of what we've kind of made our name with now. So, you know, that was the progression and we've continued to improve and expand upon that kind of stainless steel offering. And what was your process for finding and vetting manufacturers? How many did you have to go through until you ultimately found the reliable ones that you're currently using? Oh, man. I mean, these processes have changed dramatically from back then to now. You know, back then it was the classic, like, I'm going to get on Alibaba and then, you know, make some, set up some meetings and then head over there. But I had no idea what to look for. And the challenge when you're starting is that, you know, if you don't have a lot of money to produce decent quantities and you don't have the customer base to buy those quantities, you have to find factories that are willing to do minimum quantity, right? And that means you're probably going to be working with pretty crappy factories. <laughs> so, so when we started, the people that would actually have a conversation with us were usually pretty rough. And so, you know, for us, it was kind of just a progression, like, you know, work with this factory, deal with the problems, rip our hair out until we can get to the next, until we can get to the next. And so, you know, to start with, it was flying out to China and meeting with the four or five factories that would meet with us. But eventually it was going to Hong Kong and going to these massive trade fairs, sitting down for meetings with like 30 or 40 different factories each day, you know, with a list, like a checklist of things that I was looking for. And, you know, over time, you kind of start to know what you need in a supplier. For me, just the number one is communication, like believing that there's going to be a really, really clear line of communication and that they're going to understand what I'm saying. But, you know, that checklist grew and grew. And, you know, as far as the number of factories that we had to go through, I would say that we've probably talked to hundreds and we've worked with, as in actually placed orders just for jewelry with at least 30, but I would say probably more than that. You know, it's funny, sometimes, you know, younger entrepreneurs will ask me questions, you know, just for advice on this or that. And one thing I often get is, can you recommend one of your factories to me? And there's almost anything I will say to a young entrepreneur but the one thing I won't do is just give up my factories because the amount of time and money and effort and stress that went into getting those is just like, I can't even put a dollar value on it. <laughs> now, can you talk a little bit about the actual development of the product lines and then ultimately the brands and the development of the brand identities and how that emerged? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in terms of the product development, I'm... Still extremely, extremely involved, but we do definitely work with, you know, I have a creative director now. He definitely assists with designing. Um, and over the last probably six to 12 months, we've started working with third-party designers as well. 
Um, and basically they submit ideas and then we kind of work, we act as like the head designers and say, you know, can you tweak this? I think these measurements should change. I don't like this, etc. But until then I was the one designing everything. And it's pretty hilarious because I'm a awful drawer. Like I'm really, really bad. And I didn't have any technical background. Like I didn't, I eventually taught myself how to use 3d software, but at a very, very juvenile level, like I, you know, definitely not even close to being an expert. But yeah, the product development has really just been quite natural. Like I've just used things around me. Um, you know, part of our style is that it's extremely simple and, and most designers kind of want to go and show what they're capable of. I wasn't capable of showing anything exciting. <laughs> so it kind of forced our design style. But architecture was always a really big thing for me. So in terms of that product development, you know, from the design perspective, I would look at different architectural pieces and look at the shapes and that would kind of inspire me to, uh, you know, play around with them. And then from there, you know, you would start by just sending off drawings with, uh, it started off so hilariously brutal. Like I think I was using paint and I would just draw a line to a face and I'd say like, this is the measurement of this face. And, like, it was, I, and when I say, I think I used paint, I know I used paint and it was hilarious. And one day we'll release those pictures and you know, that'll be a, a pretty hilarious day because <laughs> they're bad. That's like, awesome. really bad. Can you describe today, just for people, um, what is the product offering of Vitaly Design and what is the offering of Clocks and Colors, just so people understand exactly what it is that you sell? And then maybe describe the brand identity of each company. Yeah, so I haven't even really mentioned Clocks and Colors. So I've kind of just been talking about the Vitaly story thus far. About four and a half or five years ago, I had the idea to create a second brand. The second brand was really just for me. Like I didn't expect it to do very much. I thought, okay, it's going to be really niche. Um, but my background again is, you know, punk rock and rock and roll. And Vitaly had become a very kind of contemporary streetwear type brand. And its audience was very much in the like electronic music world, the hip hop music world. And it was cool. I was really, really loving it. And I got very into that electronic music world as well. Like I was just out the other day with Zed and we just did a collaboration with him and, you know, things like that. So it's, it's pretty cool, but I felt like I was losing my roots, which was that rock and metal world. So I wanted to do a jewelry line that kind of spoke to that and to the motorcycle community, et cetera. And I figured, you know, even if it doesn't really do very well, it'll just give me that creative kind of expression that I needed. So I started doing clocks and colors and that jewelry was a little bit higher end and it was made out of silver and it was made in Bali again, uh, which was part of it. Like I really wanted to do some work in Bali again. And actually since then it started off pretty decent. And then after about two years, it just exploded. And it's pretty much the same uh, scale as Vitaly at this point. Um, but it's very much different markets and different kind of areas of countries, etc. But yeah, so I mean, the brand identity of Vitaly is a very, you know, you could say contemporary streetwear. It's very with the times, like it's very fashion forward. And we're kind of always trying to push the envelope there. Whereas Clocks and Colors is a little bit more of a traditional kind of rock and roll look. It plays into that like you know, biker kind of tattooed aesthetic. And it's never really aiming to be kind of trendy or fashionable. It's a lot more just about the story around the products. And, you know, the, what we kind of learned from there was here we are doing these two completely unique brands and they're targeting completely unique audiences and we're doing it really, really well. So it was also about four, maybe five years ago that we decided to enter into the clothing space as well. And we started doing some interesting cut and sew silhouettes for Vitaly. And that actually went pretty well. And we ended up developing an entire clothing line. Um, but what we found was that it was actually kind of 
it was that classic 80-20 rule. Like it was taking up 80% of our time, energy resources, but it was maybe 20% of the business. So it was about a year ago that we decided to just cut the clothing and refocus on jewelry. And then we started looking at, okay, well, now we have a bunch of additional bandwidth. And we know that we're good at making jewelry. We know that we're good at e-commerce. We know that we're good at creating unique brands. And so we're actually about to launch two more brands. Um, So we're actually kind of rebranding the entire company as a whole. We're calling ourselves Compound. And that's going to be a brand house for different jewelry brands that we create. So we have two more women's brands rolling out, uh, hopefully by Christmas this year. Awesome. Can you say a little bit more about the collaboration that you're doing with Zed? Uh, Maybe just explain who Zed is if people don't know and then how that came about. Yeah. So Zed is, um, you know, arguably the biggest DJ in the electronic music world right now. Um, Very much an A-list celebrity. And uh, we've already done the collaboration with him. It launched maybe a few months ago. Um, but we actually did a full collection for him. So we did a couple pieces of jewelry, some clothing, a hat, et cetera. And, and he kind of launched that out to his fans as a, you know, a capsule collection kind of thing. Um, really, really, really cool for us. And that came about through one of our partners, uh, Mike Andrews. And he set that up because he was just kind of always out there networking and basically just seeding product to all these different, um, you know, DJs and artists. Vitaly has been worn by you know, the majority of the major DJs that I can think of. Um, It's very, very much an established brand in that community. And um, it just kind of made sense that we would start to, you know, start working with and collaborating with those artists. That's awesome. So I also want to ask you um, about uh, a few of the other kind of opportunities that have come about. I know you were a judge on the fashion designer competition show Stitched. Can you talk about uh, that experience and how that came about? Yeah, that was really, really cool. Um, How it came about, I don't know. I think I just got a random email asking if I'd be interested in doing it. But it was really cool for me because I'd actually been on the show Dragon's Den, which is kind of like Shark Tank, as you mentioned in the intro. Uh, And I was on that show maybe five years prior. And then they did a recap a couple years ago. And we were on it again. But it's really interesting because you know, in that situation, I was kind of in front of the judges speaking to them. And it was wildly, wildly intimidating. Like, I, I can't even explain to you. Like, this room, when you see it on TV, it looks like you're just kind of standing in front of them. But when you're in the actual room, the chairs are probably 10 feet higher than you so that they can look down. And they go as far as your entire peripheral so that they're basically, like, surrounding you and kind of... It, it's it's intense. Like, they make it so that it's as intimidating as possible. So it was really cool for me to be in the judge seat and kind of have that whole thing flipped. And it was it was a really big thing for me because... What I learned being there was that I really loved it. Like I, I had a great time doing it and it kind of started to shift some of my long-term goals. And I was like, you know, it'd be really cool if, you know, maybe I could be one of the dragons one day and, and be sitting here on a regular basis. Um, but it was interesting too, because I obviously had a lot of, I guess, empathy for the contestants and I didn't want to be too hard on them because I was like, oh man, I've been here and this is rough, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but yeah, it's a really, really cool experience. I was just a guest judge, so it was just one episode, but I had a lot of fun doing it and I made some really cool friends um, that were on that panel with me. That's awesome. Well, I want to hear a little bit more about the Dragons Then experience for people in the US. That's basically the Canadian version of Shark Tank. So can you talk a little bit about that experience, You know what it was like, how the pitch went, what the response was like, and what came out of that? Yeah, for sure. So you know, for the Americans listening, it's very, very similar to Shark Tank. It's it's not quite as fast, but um, for a long time, we actually had 
some of the same judges. So when I did the pitch, for example, like Mr. Wonderful was on there. And I believe there was maybe even one or two other people that crossed over to Shark Tank as well. Um, so super similar format. And, you know, you just go in there and you pitch your business idea and, and they make investment offers if they're interested. What was interesting for us is you usually have to apply for this. They just heard about us, called us and said, do you want to come do the show? So I don't know how that happened. We never actually found out how they heard about us or got my number or anything. But we were happy to do it because obviously it was great exposure, especially for us at the time. And uh, yes, yeah, so we went in there. We were the very last people to pitch of like 220 pitches. And, you know, like I said, it was it was wildly intimidating. My business partner, Jason, and I were already huge fans of the show. We'd seen every single episode. So, you know, we uh, we were a little bit starstruck. And obviously, um, you know, it was, it was just a lot. But it went incredibly, incredibly well. You know, watching the video now, I can see how hilariously nervous I was. But, you know, most people said it sounded pretty good. And, and you know, it was one of the best pitches in Dragon's Den history, from what we understand. All five dragons ended up making offers. And we did accept two offers on air. The thing is, is when it goes into uh, the actual kind of like process of doing the investment afterwards, it's not always the case that it goes through. And for us, every time we were sitting down with the dragons afterwards to kind of negotiate, we were growing so quickly that we would sit down with them, they'd make a new offer and we'd be like, ah, it's not good enough anymore because we've already grown a bunch. And that happened a few times. And eventually it was like, you know what, like, thanks anyway, guys, but we're going to kind of go off and do our own thing. So yeah, it was a really, really cool experience though. Can you talk a little bit about raising investment capital in general? Because I know that in addition to that experience, you have done different capital raises. And maybe just start off by talking about you know, your perspective on the choice between bootstrapping and raising investment capital, when to bootstrap versus when to raise investment capital, and then you know, how your experience has gone doing those raises. Yeah, so we actually really haven't raised money, um, not in a traditional sense anyway. So just shortly after Jason joined on, so this is back like seven years ago, we did our only kind of you know real raise, which was only 58000 So we raised $58,000 just from like friends and family, kind of just arm's length people. And we basically bootstrapped with that since. Uh, a couple of years ago, we raised about another 100000 But compared to what we're doing in sales today, that's just you know, it was just like a little bump for marketing for that quarter. So we've never actually done any kind of like proper series A or like major seed round, etc. We were about to do it. So back when we were in Austin, um, when you and I were doing that panel, I was actually in the process of wrapping up our first series A. And we had the entire round subscribed. And we actually decided to not take the money. So it was subscribed is ready to go. Investors were lined up and were hard yeses. We just had to kind of go through the process. And what ended up happening was it had taken about three or four months to go through that process. And in that period of time, we had done so much better than anticipated that the offers that we got just didn't really make sense anymore. We're like, you know what? We can just self-finance. We really don't need to take this money. But more importantly for us, it wasn't really the money. It was the expectations. So you know, when you're talking about raising capital versus bootstrapping, you know, there's so many variables. It has so much to do with like what your product is or what your brand is going to be, etc. You know, in some cases, you need a product to grow really, really fast, or someone's going to kind of step in and take you over. But brands don't really work like that. Like, typically, brands take time, they take nurturing. You can't force them down people's throat. And if you do, you know, maybe they get big fast, but they're usually the ones that don't have any longevity, they just kind of disappear. But, you know, if you have a product idea that 
some you know big pharma company or something could come in and kind of just wipe you off the earth, then maybe you want to raise a ton of money and take a small amount of equity in the end, but grow it as quickly as you can. So there's so many variables for us. I think a lot of our success is because we bootstrapped everything. Um, bootstrapping made us have to be very, very careful with how we were spending our money. It made us very scrappy. And you know, even today, even though we're now into eight figure, like in, we're an eight figure business, we still operate very, very scrappy. So, you know, I talk to businesses that are much smaller than us and they're like, yeah, we just spent, you know, $500,000 building out this store. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Like we just did a crazy renovation and it cost us 70. And, uh, you know, I think it's probably going to look more high end. <laughs> so, you know, that's just kind of, that comes from our roots and that comes from kind of our humble beginnings. And, um, I think that's allowed us to succeed. What I've seen happen to a lot of companies is they go and they raise a bunch of money. Um, and they try and grow really, really quickly, but they don't really know what they're doing yet. So they waste a massive amount of that. And then they have so much pressure from those shareholders to grow faster and to succeed that they just take more money and then they dump it into things. And they never really solve the problem before pushing for growth. So for us, we've, we've kind of had no choice. We've always been like, okay, we're going to reinvest and, and we look very, very carefully at what's working and what's not working. And, you know, that's the kind of logic that's led us to doing things like getting rid of clothing. I think that if we'd raised a bunch of money and we had a bunch of money to throw at things, we probably wouldn't have gotten rid of clothing. But by getting rid of clothing, we've seen exponential growth almost immediately. So there's a lot there. It's a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah, there is. I mean, do you have any tips for entrepreneurs that are bootstrapping their business? And in terms of like cash flow management, for example, as you're growing and you're scaling and you're trying to grow and you're trying to scale, but sometimes if you do that too quickly or if you allot your limited resources in the wrong places, that can have a negative effect. So can you talk a little bit about you know any tips you have for just cash flow management in general, you know, in the overall financial strategy to grow a business when you're bootstrapping? Yeah, I've got a couple. So one of them is one of my favorite words. And I would say this applies to so many different parts of your business in general, but it's just the word focus. So one of my biggest tips is really, really just focus. Like stop trying to do so many different things. If you see one thing working and one thing not, focus on what's working. Like you know, don't be afraid to kind of like course correct and don't waste your time. Don't waste money. Don't try to be, you know, if, if you're a startup clothing brand, don't try and be Nike, you know, focus on what you're doing, focus on you. Because I see that all the time. Like people are like, yeah, but like this company's doing this and doing that. And even people on my team will say things like that. Yeah. But like, look at like, you know, such and such company, they're doing this. I'm like, guys, they're a billion dollar company. You know, we we're an eight figure company there's not a comparison, at least not yet. So let's focus on what we do and what we do well and keep growing. And, you know, maybe eventually we'll get there and we can do that. So yeah, I mean, I think focus is huge. So many of our biggest problems and mistakes were when we tried to do too much too fast. And I think that if we were a little bit more focused, we wouldn't have done that. So that's become almost my number one kind of process or, or like goal as, you know, the leader of this ship and as the captain here is to just make sure that people are staying focused. And then the other thing would be something actually my mentor told me, and I think it's really, really important. Uh, it's a lot more of kind of a simple business concept, but make sure that whatever you're doing, if you're dealing with products, always maintains the same margin. I've seen so many businesses run into problems with this, and we have at times here and there as well, where you know, let's say that their average margin on products is 70%, and then they roll out a product that's like a 40% margin or 30% margin. 
it's so problematic because your entire marketing strategy is built on that 70% idea when you have something that's 30 or 40. Now it's like, well, where do you allocate funds? And you know, like, why, why are you selling that product when you could be selling things that are a lot more, right? So it, it just eventually causes a lot of problems and kind of breakdowns in the business. So yeah, I'd say those are two big ones for me. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about your marketing strategy since you just mentioned it? And maybe you know, give people a sense of the, the, the size of your marketing department and you know, your ad spends and that kind of stuff. And then you know, what types of tips or strategies or lessons can you share from you know, the, the extent of your marketing experience? Yeah, that's a huge, huge question. Um, (laughs) it's, it's, there's so many different directions I could go with this, but you know, to give people kind of perspective on scale, we spend probably 10 to $15,000 a day on marketing. Um, and virtually all of that is online. And, uh, you know, for us, we're very much an e-commerce business. That's how we see ourselves. Um, we actually used to wholesale to hundreds of retail stores and we cut that out as well, just because it wasn't focused. So, you know, as far as our marketing strategy goes, We've always been really, really big on super, super strong, interesting visuals. Um, so, you know, we have in-house photographers, um, a really great creative team. And our entire marketing and creative team is probably six or seven people. But we don't work with agencies. We don't kind of outsource anything. We really do things in-house and, and you know, really, really spend a lot of time and energy on that creative and, and on ideas that are going to capture people. Um, and then from there... We spend an enormous amount of, amount of money pushing that out through channels like you know Facebook and Instagram and Google, um, through paid marketing and paid search. Um, but one thing that's really important for us is that we do a crazy amount of A/B testing and, and iterations on those different ads. So rather than having you know a couple ad sets that we go and pump a bunch of money into, we might be running 50 or 100 different ad sets and pretty much playing them like the stock market. Like if this one's going up, we keep putting money into it. And if it starts to kind of slow down, then we're looking at, okay, well, where, where should we shift dollars, right? So it's like, okay, maybe we have $15,000, but maybe it's like $300 per campaign per day kind of thing. And, and that's been you know really, really impactful for us. For people that are starting a marketing strategy at an earlier stage in their business and they don't have uh, you know, the financial resources, let's say, to do 50 and 100 iterations of ad sets on Facebook and run them at, at that scale... What tips do you have for you know starting a marketing campaign and and eventually scaling it up? If someone is is beginning, how would they start an effective marketing campaign with less resources? Yeah, I mean, again, it, it's tricky because it's so dependent on the business. I think you know that being said, maybe the first thing is understanding why you're running that marketing campaign. I think a lot of people forget to ask why they do most of what they do. Um, but you know, there's a lot of businesses that just shouldn't be running marketing campaigns through Facebook or Instagram, for example, like it just might not make sense. Um, but they think like, okay, well maybe I can just throw some money here and that's going to like drive business for me. Um, but you know, there's, there's all kinds of ways to do marketing. It's not all just, you know, the traditional kind of out of home experience or like digital marketing, et cetera. Like it's really just going to come down to what your, you know, your objectives are. And, um, you know, if you're a small business and you actually have a product that you can sell online and, you know, your goal is to be strong at e-commerce, what I would say is that it's important that you do have enough money in your initial budgets to do a proper test. What I hear is a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, like I put a hundred bucks in or put it 200 bucks in and it just didn't really do that much for me. And it's like, well, to be completely blunt, 
you're never going to learn anything with a hundred or two hundred dollars because it takes a, it takes time, it takes iterations, it takes like you know there's a whole process behind the Facebook algorithm. Like it needs time to kind of figure out who your customer is, etc. So you know make sure you're going at anything like that with four or five thousand dollars, and be careful that you don't just hand all your money to an agency who's going to get five thousand dollars and put a thousand of that into ads because they're like retainers 2000 and blah, 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 blah. Cause I see that happen all the time too. And that's really, really upsetting. Like my, my suggestion would be at first, try it out yourself, you know, try and learn the system, you know, so you have a clear understanding of what you're doing. But yeah, I mean, it's tricky. Like I love marketing. I would say that that's definitely what I'm best at, but I need a lot of information before I can tell somebody, this is what I think you should do as far as your marketing strategy goes. Right. And can you talk a little bit now about hiring and how you hire great staff? You have uh, at least 35 staff in Canada and you have other staff around the world, but how do you hire and retain great people? This is a tough one. Hiring is so, so difficult. I'll be the first to admit we've made a lot of mistakes from hiring from the perspective of hiring. But you know, what I would say is if you know that somebody is truly passionate about your product or your idea, they should definitely be on the top of your list. You know, there's a lot to be said for credentials and you know where you're educated, etc. But I honestly think there's more to be said for someone who's passionate about what you're doing. And so that's been really, really powerful for us. I would say that most of my best team members have been with us for years now. Like We've got people who have been with us for five years now. Um, and in our industry, that's a long time. But they're passionate about what we do. They feel part of it. They feel connected to it. And they're not just there for a paycheck. And that's really, really powerful. So if you can find a way to learn you know, what their true kind of objectives are, that, that helps a lot. Like, you know, It's one thing to know that you need whatever, an accountant or something. But it's another thing to know that it's their dream to work for a company like yours. So I would say that that's probably the the biggest thing. And then if you can hire internally, do that whenever possible. There's been too many times where we went out and we hired somebody senior rather than just promoting somebody within because we didn't think that person was ready. And I think that's been a mistake every single time we've done it. I think people are never really completely ready, even the person that you hired that apparently has all this experience. But the person who's been in your company for two years and knows it inside out is probably a lot more likely to become ready, right? Like we all have to start somewhere. So my marketing manager right now, he started with us like whipping together random ads for us and whatnot, and like just kind of doing any odds and ends things and then helping with our web development, etc. And now he's our marketing manager and he's, you know, incredibly important for the business. And we value him so much and he just kind of quickly worked his way up. But there was one point where I hired somebody to kind of manage him. And that was a huge mistake that, that shouldn't have happened. And we ended up having to kind of let that person go. And then, and then we did promote this guy. And you know, that was one of the better decisions we've made because he's been, he's been really great. That's really good advice. I also want to ask you about management and leadership. Can you talk a little bit about your leadership style as a CEO? How do you lead and inspire your team? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think my management style has changed dramatically. I've never seen myself as somebody to micromanage, but I certainly think I did micromanage a little bit, you know, if we go back, say, two or three years. But, you know, when I went away for a remote year, which was, you know, a year of traveling um, with a bunch of other digital nomads, I kind of had no choice but to step back and, and be more hands off with everyone. And I think that has been pretty impactful for me in terms of really like locking in my management style, which is very much to be hands off, 
unless I need to be hands-on. You know, you don't need to be involved all the time. And I think that that's a mistake that a lot of managers make. And I think they burn themselves out doing that. And I also think that they contribute a lot less. I think the problem is that the idea of a manager is, I think just the name in general is problematic. Like it makes somebody feel like they need to control that person. But that's not the point. Like the best employees are people who are really independent and you get the best employees by letting them have their independence. So I I would actually strongly recommend reading a book called Drive. I would say that that's the best book I've ever read on management. Um, It's by Daniel Pink, I believe. But he does a really, really great job of explaining that people are not motivated by money. People are not motivated by promotions. And if they are, it's very shallow and it doesn't hold. What they're really motivated by is feeling that they have a real impact on something. And I think when you're an aggressive manager and you micromanage things, you kind of give off the impression that they don't have control. You have all of it. And you know the, it, it almost takes away the credit from them as well. So my management style now is to uh, to be pretty hands-off and to let people really own their position and, and to be partners in the company instead of employees. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit, you mentioned remote year. You and I have both done remote year, which is a 12-month long work travel program for working professionals who travel the world together as a community. And you did that while running an eight-figure business. And uh, I was wondering if you can talk about some of the logistics of how you manage and run a distributed team from all different places around the world. And also, if you can talk about building company culture and the importance of that and how you've built company culture with a remote distributed team. Yeah. Um, I mean, company culture is complex. It's it's really hard to kind of get into it. But our company culture and it has worked really, really well because of the type of people that we hire, right? And the type of, of brand we are. I think like being authentic to... Like if you're a brand, your company culture should kind of reflect it because I think people are attracted to the company by the brand. Um, so, you know, our brands are kind of like, you know, cool, laid back, a little bit anti-authority, that kind of vibe. Um, and so we've kind of tried to create a culture that's similar. Like we don't have a lot of oversight. We don't have like cubicles or like a super strict kind of office format, etc. And I think that, you know, that's part of the company culture. We try and do a lot of stuff together, like partying, etc. But without it being too like, you know, sterile or like this is like, you know, a team building experience. Like, you know, we're just a lot more like laid back and, and kind of just like a group of friends more than anything, more of a more of a team, I guess you could say. As far as doing that from remote year, I would say that doing it while I was on remote year was very similar to when I'm in the office regardless because most of our communication just happens through tools like Slack or email. So even though we're close to each other, it's not like we're always kind of working together and doing things. Like outside of like these bi-weekly meetings that we do, um, which I was just getting patched into while I was traveling, most of the time it's just kind of like, you know, if I needed to do a face-to-face meeting with someone, I'd just do a quick phone call. But yeah, I mean, it was... It was a pretty amazing experience being on remote year though, because what it did do was it gave me some distance from that kind of day to day and from like having to have like non-critical meetings, which ended up giving me a lot of time to kind of work more like on the business and like on the bigger picture strategy instead of like in the business and on the day to day kind of monotony stuff. 
Awesome. Let's use that to transition into talking a little bit about travel. So you and I have both done the Remote Year program for a year, and we've both done a bunch of extended travel outside of that before and after that. And I want to ask you, I want to start off by asking you a very general question about why do you travel? What do you get out of travel? What does travel mean to you? Yeah, I mean, for me, traveling has always just been a bit of a reset. You know, I think that when I'm in the city, it kind of starts to build a lot of anxiety for me. You, you know, you're, you're always just moving so fast. And, you know, I love that. Um, and I'm really attracted to it. But I think that if I spend too much time in that zone, it starts to become problematic. It starts to appeal too much to my ego. Um, and, you know, I think being able to travel allows me to kind of escape from that. Um, it's also just an amazing source of inspiration. Like as a designer, you're always seeing new things when you're traveling and seeing things that are very, very different from what you might see on a day-to-day basis. And obviously that acts as pretty major inspiration for me from a design perspective. But, you know, as I was just mentioning, I've also learned that at this stage, it gives me an opportunity to kind of step outside of my business. And I think that that's pretty invaluable because it gives me an opportunity to, uh, to really kind of like look at the bigger picture. And I think that that's something that we often forget to do or maybe just can't even do when we're just in the same spot all the time, you know, in our same routine, et cetera. And what have been, I mean, over the years as you've traveled, I mean, you when you reflect back on it, what kinds of lessons or personal growth have you gotten through your travel experiences? I mean, a really, really big one. I don't know if it's personal growth necessarily, but I've learned that there's so much value in working smart. Um, so, you know, I think that when you're in this big cities, it's so common for people to almost brag about how much they work, like how, how many hours they work. And they love to respond with, you know, somebody says, have you been? And they say, oh, you know, just so busy. That's such a pet peeve for me. It kind of drives me crazy. But I used to be that person. And I, I really try my best not to say that anymore. Um, but what I've learned is that you can often get the same amount of work done in three hours that you might do in eight or 10 if you decide that you're going to get that much done in three hours. Um, and it goes back to that word I really love, which is focus. Um, what I've learned is that you know you can really just hyper-focus and often your work is actually better because you're not doing it while allowing yourself to be distracted over and over again. I forget what it's called. I, I'm awful at remembering these kinds of things. Maybe it's like Peter's Law or something like that. Some white guy's name, Law. And basically what it means is if you have you know eight hours to do something, you're going to take eight hours to do it. But if you have three hours, you'll still probably get it done at three hours. Um, so a really, really big thing for me has been to look at my day and think, I want to do these things for me so I have this much time to work instead of taking all the time I need to work and then giving myself almost no time for me because I just find that that just works so much better for my mental health and and just makes my life so much more fulfilling. That's awesome advice. Can you talk a little bit more about your productivity habits and your day structure or do you have morning routines, for example, that you do every day? And how do you structure your day typically to get as much output as you do? Yeah. So actually, since returning from my year of travels with Remote Year, I've actually completely changed up how we work. I actually usually take the mornings off. So you know, most people, the first thing they do, they wake up and they dive into work. I found that that's just a great way to inspire a ton of anxiety. And I'm not great at working up super early. You know, you, you always hear about these CEOs that wake up at like 5 a.m. and they're so productive because they do that. That's just, that's not me. <laughs> like, like, there's no way in hell that I'm getting up at 5 a.m. every day. 
but I do like to wake up and I do like to do things for myself before I dive into my work. So, you know, I'll wake up, I make sure I cook a good meal. I meditate. I make sure that I exercise pretty much every single day. And, you know, I might even try and get some reading in or play guitar before I go into work and, and start working. And then, you know, what I'll usually do is I'll go to the office, you know, from after lunch until maybe six o'clock, come home, cook a nice meal again, and then maybe do another hour or two after that if I need to. But like I said, what I found is I can usually get the same amount of work done or get what I need to get done that afternoon regardless. And I don't usually need that extra time after work. That being said, I'm also the kind of person who will work on my Saturday or my Sunday in the exact same format because I don't have this kind of like looking forward to the weekend thing because I enjoy each day instead of you know living for the weekend, which is just something that didn't really work very well for me. And then in terms of productivity, you know, I'm, I'm really, really, really scheduled. Like I'm you know, I schedule out that morning so that nothing can be put in there. But then when my afternoon comes in, like I live by my calendar. And, you know, I think most people would say that in, in this kind of scenario, but it's really important for me. And it's nearly impossible to book anything with me, sorry, within two weeks because I'll have all of it blocked out. I also want to ask you, Shane, about stress management and stress reduction. And maybe just start um, by asking you about, you know, along your entrepreneurial journey, what have been some stressful setbacks or challenges that you've incurred? And how have you overcome those? Or what have you learned from them, first of all? But then I'm also wondering about specifically about stress management techniques that you personally use when things get really, really hectic or you have a big downswing in the entrepreneurial roller coaster. Yeah. So, I mean, I just mentioned most of my techniques. It's so important for me to meditate, to read, to exercise. All of those things are really, really powerful tools for disconnecting and for relaxing. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people and, and their response to me will be that I don't have time. And my response back is bullshit. Like you, you don't have time to not do it. You need those things. Like if you don't do those things, you're going to be so much more ineffective and you're probably going to end up suffering from like, you know, crippling anxiety and stress. And that's ultimately going to lead to health problems. You know, so for me, I just, I figure at this stage, you have to take that time. That being said, for six or seven years, I definitely didn't do that. And I allowed myself to succumb to crippling stress and it was awful. So in terms of stories of times where I you know, was in a position where I needed to really deal with these things, I can think of a lot of them, but it wasn't until about two years ago that I actually figured out ways to deal with it. So for about six years, I would just you know, let myself just lose my mind. And that just was so awful. The amount of times that I had friends kind of you know, pull me aside and be like, man, like, this isn't healthy. Like if you're this stressed out, maybe you should be doing something else or whatever. Um, but what it was, was I just wasn't acknowledging it. You know, I was just trying to kind of push past it. But, you know, in terms of the things that would cause that, like I would be amazed if you speak to any entrepreneurs who would say that they haven't been kind of at a point multiple times where they thought they're bankrupt and everything they'd been working on was over. Um, I can think of probably like five, six, maybe seven times where we were like, well, that's it. We're done. The very first one I've actually already mentioned was, you know, when I received that first box of rings, my last $3,000 and every single product was broken. So I was like, well, I'm done. You know, like, how am I supposed to move forward? And then when we got our first shipment of ceramic products, all of them were useless. Like, it was nothing like what we discussed and what the designs showed. They were completely unwearable. You know, so we went through that process so many times. At one point, we were really, really like, you know, back of the car kind of vibe, you know, like selling out of the trunk of the car type vibe. And all of our stuff was warehoused in our basement in the house that we were living in. And there was a massive flood and the whole basement flooded and all the inventory. It was wood inventory at the time. So 
when the flood came in and destroyed all of it. Um, so, you know, obviously we thought we were bankrupt again. There's just so many scenarios like that. And I think, you know, for anyone that's thinking about starting a business, you need to expect that these things are coming because they are. You know, there's never a super smooth, super straight path to any entrepreneurial journey. But, you know, it's those things that make you stronger. Um, that being said, they don't make you stronger if you don't take the steps to learn how to deal with them. You know, if you just think like, okay, well, I'm getting stronger because, you know, I just had 10 panic attacks and now I'm moving on from it because you're just going to have 10 panic attacks again the next time. So, you know, for me, a really, really powerful thing that led to a lot of the practices that I have today was I actually went to therapy. I was like, you know what? This isn't okay anymore. I don't want to deal with this kind of crippling anxiety and stress, but I also don't want to go and start taking a bunch of medication and try and like dull this, you know, like I think that it's important to actually feel what's happening, but to deal with it properly instead of just trying to put a bandaid on it by like packing meds into your body. And that therapy was really, really impactful. And it led to a shift in my mindset. And, you know, that kind of led to focusing on the right things like exercise and, and reading and that kind of thing. And was the therapy something that you incorporated as an ongoing, regular, routine part of your life? Or was that just in a particular period to get you through a particular spot? Yeah, for me, it's an as-needed thing. So I've, I've been back since just to help deal with other things. Like, you know, there was definitely a period of time where I was very much suffering from that, you know, very common imposter syndrome. So that was something I had to work through. But, you know, I think I think it's good if you go on a regular basis. But... I also don't think it's always necessary. Um, my therapist doesn't think so for me. She's like, you know, come back if you're really, really stressed out. But otherwise, I think you've got a pretty good handle on things. So, you know, I just take it as I need it. But I'm a huge, huge believer in therapy. And I really think that every single person should go. I mean, the amount of people who think that they have no reason to go is mind-blowing. And it's always those people who have the most reason. They're just the people who just bury everything. And the people who bury everything, they're going to see it in one way or another, whether it is in like a mental health way or whether it's in a physical health way. And this is something that I've become really, really interested in um, over the last three or four months is how mental health manifests in a physical way. And it's been mind-blowing the amount of people that I talk to that have major problems with their gut. And that's because your gut is directly linked to your mental health. So if you're constantly stressed and constantly anxious, you might think, well, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But you have no idea the damage that you're doing to your body. And if the inside of your gut is not healthy the rest of your body is going to start falling apart too. So, you know, it's all linked. Everything is about balance and, and you really, really, really need to, uh, to understand that everything can't just be work and everything can't just be fun either. Like you just, you need to, you know, make sure that you're trying to kind of balance all, all those things. For sure. I think that's really important advice. Um, so let me ask you this. I know along your entrepreneurial journey, as you were building your businesses and you were getting out there, you know, you as a person and your personal identity and, and personal brand as a CEO, as well as the success of your businesses, you've attracted the attention, uh, a lot of attention. And I know that Axe approached you about doing a commercial and MTV uh, approached you about doing a spot on your team. Can you talk a little bit about how those things went down? Yeah, I mean, I think it was similar to Stitched in terms of, you know, people just kind of reached out to me randomly um, and said, hey, we have this idea. But, you know, they were really, really cool. Like the the Axe program was something that I really enjoyed. It was something that uh, actually had a pretty big impact on me. 
But there were a lot of parts to it. One of which was mentoring people with programs that they're working on. Um, another one was doing a live Q&A, which was really cool. I was supposed to do this Q&A for 30 minutes for about 30 people. And well over 100 showed up and it lasted for about two hours. And I loved it. You know, like it, I just got to sit down and help a lot of people on a major scale. And, you know, I think that that's something I've realized that's really important to me. And that's become a major goal for me down the road. And then, yeah, you know, they did a commercial on me and that was basically a one minute spotlight. Um, just kind of talking about my life as a creator and as a leader, you know, who didn't necessarily take the most traditional path, but is still being able to find success and live a good life. And, you know, I think that that's a major mandate for myself is, is making sure that people understand that, you know, not everything is about studying math and science and, and taking a traditional job. Like there's so many cool opportunities out there and there's so many different kinds of intelligences. And I think that people should be proud of their different intelligences and, and pursue them without fear. Because I think that if you pursue what you're good at, even if it seems like it's not the most popular thing or, or going to lead to traditional success, I think you'll find success, whether it's financially or whether it's, you know, in terms of your happiness the MTV thing was really cool. That was more of a spotlight on our team as a whole. And yeah, I mean, it was a similar thing to Axe. Like they kind of just did a spotlight, you know, short online TV episode about us. And uh, yeah, it was just a good time. Like they just kind of followed us around our day to day and, and, you know, did a spotlight on our general lifestyle beyond just our work and, you know, showed that we're not kind of corporate type people. Like we, we get our work done and we care about it and we work hard, but we also live a little bit more of an alternative lifestyle. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of your personal brand and then your company brands? And so to what extent are they intertwined and to what extent are they separate? And can you talk a little bit, explain a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really, really interesting thing. And it's something we've just kind of gone through. And it was really, it was challenging, um, but it was a really great lesson to learn. So when we first started for, you know, maybe the first five years, I would say the founders, so like myself and my business partner, Jason, and then what we call the OG four. So like the original four guys. So that'd be our creative director, Zach, and our, uh, one of our partners, Mike Andrews, we were all kind of the brand. So we were always shown on the social media, you know, really out there representing it, et cetera. But clocks and colors on the other hand was never like that. So we never kind of were forward facing in that, like it was always its own brand. And what we found was that made things a lot easier for clocks and colors because over time we were aging and maturing and, and we were kind of trying to take the Vitaly brand with us as we aged, but it wasn't designed to do that. You know, it's not a brand that's meant to target 35 year olds or 40 year olds. You know, it like it has its space that it's supposed to live. And what we had to learn was that sometimes you have to let your brand go the same way that you know you have to send your kid off to university they can't live at home forever and that was really impactful for us so my personal brand has definitely started to part ways from those and and i think my personal brand now is a little bit more about being more of a kind of an alternative leader and and somebody who doesn't do things in a status quo way and more of an entrepreneur kind of a, a opinion leader in that way so you know like i said i'm i'm in the middle right now of working on two more brands uh, both of which will launch by Christmas. And these brands are actually women's brands. And I'm taking everything that I've learned from my first two and I'm launching these, but I will be very much in the background on both of these as well. And you know, my personal brand won't really be injected into them in any way, shape or form because I've learned that 
that's no longer important. Um, but it can be so, so incredibly important for a startup. And it was incredibly important for our startup. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying that people shouldn't inject themselves into their brand. I just think that they need to be ready to understand that, you know, they might build something that gets to a point that's bigger than them. I want to ask you also about major business pivots. You briefly alluded to earlier that you decided to go into clothing and then you decided to get out of clothing. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that. I know over the last year or year and a half or whatever it was that there was a, a major kind of pivot and transition there for you. Can you talk about the choice to make that decision and then the outcome of that and how that all went down? Yeah, so it's it's been a pretty crazy ride. So when I left for a remote year about a year and a half ago, things were pretty tumultuous to say the least. And I wasn't really sure how things were going to go. I actually thought that there was a good chance I'd have to drop out a remote year after about four months and head home to kind of deal with things. Basically, where we were at was our cash flow position was kind of just getting worse and worse. And there was a lot of stress and the company culture just wasn't super strong. And so that was happening before remote year as well. And so we made our first major change. And everybody kind of thought I was a little bit crazy. A couple of people on my team definitely didn't. But like overall, the company was like, what are you doing? But I made the decision to completely get rid of wholesale. So we were wholesaling to about anywhere between 500 and 700 retail stores globally. And many of which were you know, considered the best retailers in the world, like your Nordstrom or your Bloomingdale's, your Simons, etc. But I decided to pull out of that because I looked at it and I was like, you know, maybe we're doing millions of dollars in sales, but we're actually probably losing money working with these retailers. Not to mention all the impacts on the company culture from being super stressed out working with them, etc. So we made that change. And the, it took about six months to start feeling the, the positive impacts of it. And so I went on remote ear about three months into that change. So we were still kind of in that like down slope where it was like, oh no, like what's going on? And yeah, about three months more into remote ear, it kind of clicked and all the changes that we made started to work and it allowed us to do new things. Like for example, we started releasing a new product uh, for both brands every week instead of a new collection every three months kind of thing. And that had a huge impact on keeping people's interest. And it allowed us to take a lot more risks because we were launching a lot more products and we didn't have to worry about how they'd be impacted in wholesale, etc. And so yeah, so that started to kind of turn around. And that basically was the catalyst for me kind of taking another step back and going, okay, we just made this crazy change or what seemed crazy you know, we cut a huge division of the company and we're already almost bouncing back in terms of sales. Maybe we can do that in other places and we can keep simplifying and we can really focus. And that's when I started looking at all of our retail stores and our clothing. And so the first thing was we made the decision to get rid of clothing. We were like, you know, we looked at the numbers, we looked at the stress that it kind of creates for the company. And it just was like, okay, you know what, maybe, maybe our sales will dip a couple million a year, a few million a year by getting rid of clothing. But I think that it'll just be worth it. Even if we don't bounce back in terms of sales, we'll just be a happier company in general. So we made that decision. And that decision basically forced us to close most of our stores. We had seven at the time. Um, all of them were just long-term pop-ups anyway. Like They weren't five of them anyway. Um, so we kept our two that were like long-term leases. And we've kind of been in the process of uh, rejigging those. But you know, long story short, we got rid of the clothing. That made all our stores too big. Got rid of the stores. And now we are no longer wholesale, no longer clothing, no longer brick and mortar for the most part, aside from our couple smaller stores. It's just been a crazy turnaround since then. Like it's it's honestly like is something that the whole team is just so proud of. We're skyrocketing past what we would have imagined. I think I told you earlier we uh, 
we were trying to raise money. We thought we were going to need it to kind of bounce back, etc. We decided not to do that. And when we pitched investors, we were like, this is what we're going to do in sales with the investment. We didn't take the investment and we're 50% past that. So it's been, uh, it's been pretty crazy. And it's been with less kind of stress and work than ever. The company culture is incredible. So, you know, this is why I'm like so crazy obsessed right now with focus. And I don't think people should be scared to, you know, give up a little bit of sales here and there to, uh, to create a better situation. That is so awesome. All right, Shane, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Lightning round sounds intimidating, but let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has influenced you over the years that you'd most recommend to people? Uh, I already mentioned it earlier, but Drive was a huge influence for me. So I, I strongly recommend Drive. Um, again, I I believe it's by Daniel Pink. It's just a really powerful book for understanding people's motivations. I would love to say another one too. Uh, I believe it's called let my people go surfing. It's by the founder of Patagonia. Um, just a really, really great one to kind of open your eyes about the impacts of fashion on this planet. So we do pretty much everything we can to be as low impact on the environment as possible. Um, and then I would love to give a shout out to the book Shantaram. It's definitely my favorite fiction. So, so good. (laughs) Awesome. What is one app or productivity tool or gadget that you're currently using that you'd recommend? I have this secondary monitor that I travel with. It just links directly into my computer. It doesn't need like a battery or anything. I find that to be pretty impactful for me. I just seem to work so much better with secondary monitors. Although I have heard recently that there's research that says that doesn't actually help. I think it comes down to how you use them. It definitely helps me. So yeah, I really love that. Cool. What is one either blog that you read or podcast you listen to or YouTube channel that you watch, some content medium that you consume that you'd recommend people check out? I'm addicted to how I built it. Um, It's a podcast just very much about the stories uh, behind many of the biggest entrepreneurs in the world. Um, I like listening to the stories about those guys and then the stories about kind of younger startups to kind of see that we're all just normal people and, and it's possible for everyone. Um, so yeah, I mean, that one I, I listen to religiously and you know, you'll have people like Richard Branson on there and it's somebody who just has done such remarkable things, but you know, started off extremely humble and I love that. Yeah, he's amazing. I uh, saw Richard Branson speak uh, in person a few months ago, right before South by actually uh, in San Diego. It was pretty, pretty amazing. So cool. Who would be one person that is currently alive today that you would most like to have dinner with? If you could have an extended dinner, one-on-one conversation with one person, who would that be and why? Like The first one that comes to mind is Richard Branson, just because I have so much respect for him. To be so successful and also kind of universally loved kind of blows my mind. And I know this is a huge name, but I also think I'd love to have dinner with Tim Ferriss. And I think it's because I'm so curious what he's like in real life. You know, I've read so much of his stuff and I've listened to his, a million of his podcasts. And I'm just wondering if he's just like super, super intense in person or if he can like let loose or let loose, sorry, and, and be a normal person. So yeah, I mean, I would say one of those two. Awesome. All right. I want to close this out with a couple of travel questions, Shane. What are the top three travel destinations you've ever been to that you'd most recommend to people? Um, my favorite spot in the world is Changu, Bali. Uh, it's got a special place in my heart. I go there probably a couple times a year and 
it's got everything I want. It's a beautiful place. It's affordable, healthy lifestyle, but you still have a lot of people coming from all over the world. And I just really, really love it. I recently discovered this little beach town in Mexico called Puerto Escondido. Huge fan of that place as well. Just a cute little beach town, really healthy lifestyle there too. And I don't know, most of the places for me are very opposite cities, even though I'm a city person. And and it's because they're kind of the places that reset me. Thailand in general is definitely a a favorite, but I can't say a spot in Thailand because I love the North and the South. Two very different experiences, but but both great in their own ways. And I got to throw out one more, which is Cape Town, South Africa. It's one of the coolest cities I've ever been. I'm actually headed back there for January and February, and I can't wait to do it. I know you're saying you're in West Africa, so I'm hoping to do some popping around from Cape Town and, and check out more of Africa as well. Yeah, for sure. I was just in Cape Town for two months earlier this year. I spent April and May there. I did my birthday in Stellenbosch tasting wine and uh, all that yes. super, super beautiful beautiful place. Very, very special city. So uh, hit me up for recommendations when you go for sure. Um, all right. So last question. What are the top three bucket list destinations for you? Places you've never been that you most want to go that are at the top of your list right now? Oh man, so I've been so fortunate. I've gone to so many of the places I really wanted to go. I still have never been to the mountains in Japan. So I would love to go snowboarding in the mountains in Japan. I'd love to see St. Petersburg, Russia, because it's just, uh, it, I feel like it would just be such a weird place to go and I've never been there. Um, and I've never been to Prague. But when I go to Africa, I really want to bungee jump off that second highest bridge in the world. That's a, that's a bucket list thing right now for sure. Awesome. Well, you'll knock that out uh, uh, in the near future, I'm sure. So awesome. Shane, this has been amazing. I want you to let people know at this point how they can uh, find you, how they can follow you on social media, how they can learn more about both Vitaly and Clocks and Colors and the other stuff you've got uh, coming up. Yeah. So the easiest way to find me would be on Instagram. So just at Shane Vitaly Foran. So S-H-A-N-E-V-I-T-A-L-Y-F-O-R-A-N. Um, and then for my brands, Instagram again, best place. So at clocks and colors, colors spelled the British way. So with a U in the middle, um, and then Vitaly. So at Vitaly. Awesome. And, uh, both your personal Instagram and the Instagram handles for your brands are absolutely next level. Amazing. So I recommend that everybody follow those for sure. Awesome. Shane, thank you so much for being on the show, my man. It was great to have you. Man, so good to catch up. We'll uh, we'll have to try and catch up in Africa at some point. Let's do it, man, or somewhere else around the world. I know you're going to Asia as well. And I'm actually headed to St. Petersburg. You mentioned that. I'm actually headed to Russia in uh, September. I'm going to do the Nomad Train and do the Trans-Siberian Railway from Moscow to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. So we'll both be crisscrossing the globe, my man, and let's try to cross paths at some point this year. I look forward to it. Yeah, for sure. Talk soon. Awesome. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. 
If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.